Welcome again to The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I'm taking another look at a book called When Cultists Ask by Geisler and Rhodes. And uh, I'll tell you, cults and new religions are all over the place, and I've uh, done some podcasts on them in the past. And each one says it's the way for salvation. It's the way to learn what you need to to please God if there's a God. And uh, so they're all over the place, and I think it's important to take a look, first of all, and decide what we mean by the term cult. And the book starts with that, and I'd like to cover their intro. Uh, They just call it Understanding the Cults. And it says, um, I think this is a really powerful way to start, as the light of Christianity fades, darkness is flooding in from every side. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and New Age religions galore are all seeking the souls of human beings. And uh, that's sad, isn't it? But, uh, gee, I mean, you have to say that's true. It's, you know, when Christianity fades, it's not that people stop believing in anything. They believe in everything and some really oddball things. Um, They suggest there may be as many as 3,000 cults, and it involves apparently at least 20 million people just in the U.S. There are over 5 million Jehovah's Witnesses in the world, and 9 million Mormons, and tens of millions of New Agers. <clears throat> I'm dealing with somebody online right now who, uh, it's hard to pin down what, you know, New Age specifically, but I think he's got a lot of New Age ideas. So they're out there, and these are people that may be our neighbors, and we need to know, first of all, what is a cult, and then good ways to interact with them. So Both authors say we need to take this cultic threat seriously and learn to defend Christianity with all this onslaught that's going on. So it's a pretty tough job. They're going to try to define a cult when there really isn't a set of agreed-upon definitions. There are just some general traits. So they break it into three sections, looking at a cult in a doctrinal way, sociological way, and a moral way. Okay, now they point out not every cult is going to have every trait listed here. But I've done a class on cults, and I use Scientology as an example. And it meets a lot of these qualifications, but I'm not sure every single one. So here they are, doctrinal, sociological, and moral. So let's take a look. Doctrinal, what are some of the characteristics of of a cult here, according to Geisler and Rhodes? Well, they said they often talk about a new revelation. They say they have a direct, many of the leaders will say they have a direct pipeline to God. And uh, sometimes the cult ideas change, so they need new revelations. And they gave a great example here. Mormons one time excluded African Americans from the priesthood. But of course, there was a lot of pressure on the Mormons in the 1960s for this. So all of a sudden, the Mormon president got a new revelation. Boom, out went that uh, decree, and in came a new one, which allowed them to have uh, African Americans involved in the priesthood. What about Jehovah's Witnesses? Well, at one time, They talked about vaccinations and organ transplants as being prohibited. And then they had what they called new light from God, and it was okay. So number one, as a doctrinal characteristic of a cult, new revelation. Secondly, denial of the sole authority of the Bible. Uh, They they say, well, yeah, the Bible's fine, plus. So you have Mormons. Well, they think the Book of Mormon is higher scripture than the Bible. Uh, Jim Jones said he was more in authority than the Bible was. Christian scientists have Mary Baker Eddy's book. Uh, There's Reverend Moon. He put his book, The Divine Principle, over all of his followers. 
New Agers think there's some kind of new revelation, but they vary on which one. There's one called the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus the Christ. So we're still in the doctrinal area. So new revelation, denial of the soul, authority of the Bible. Here's a third thing as far as doctrines go, a distorted view of God and Jesus. And I would say this is always a good place to start with any group that you're not sure of. Just say, what do you believe about God and what do you believe about Jesus? Um, So you have, for example, some groups believe uh, that there's not a trinity, that Jesus is God and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are just names for Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses deny the trinity and they deny the true deity of Christ. They say he's a lesser God. He's not God Almighty. Mormons say Jesus was procreated by a heavenly father and heavenly mother. And he's a spirit brother of Lucifer. So you can go down that list. They have a different view of God and Jesus. They'll use those terms, but they have a very different view. Uh, They'll deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Many of them do that. Here's one more thing that's a doctrinal characteristic. Denial of salvation by grace. And I think that's just absolutely critical. You look at Jesus, if he is God, then he can take on the sins of the world. If he's not God, which these cults deny, if he's not God, then we have to make up the difference. We've got to get right with God on our terms. And so the Mormons, for example, say you have to become more and more perfect in this life. Jehovah's Witnesses, you got to say you got to go door to door and you got to work out your salvation. So there you go. There are the doctrinal characteristics, new revelation, denial of the sole authority of the Bible, a distorted view of God and Jesus, and denial of salvation by grace. What about sociological characteristics? So what goes on there as far as how they get along with people? And one way uh, that they are different is the authoritarianism. There's always an authority figure, and he uses some pretty devilish mind control techniques. And this is certainly true when I read up on... uh, Scientology with L. Ron Hubbard, but we see that at David Koresh, for example, with the Branch Davidian, uh, Jim Jones, and many, many others. So authoritarianism is going on. Exclusivism, that's the idea that says we alone have the truth. The Mormons say they have the truth. That What's odd about the Mormons, they say they're Christians. So then you say to them, well, I'm a Christian. Does that make me a Mormon? And they'll say, oh, no. So it's kind of interesting. It's a one-way street there. So they alone have the truth. Uh, Same with Jehovah's Witnesses. They think they're the exclusive community of the saved. Here's a third sociological area, dogmatism, pretty much like the second one. Um, Mormons say they're the only true church on earth. Jehovah's Witnesses say they're the sole voice of Jehovah on earth and so on. Here's a key one, closed-mindedness. Oh, did I see that with the reading on Scientology? They don't want you reading any other view than what L. Ron Hubbard pushes. They don't want to consider any other view. One educated Mormon that these two authors, Geisler and Rhodes, said they talked to, said he didn't care if it could be proved that Joseph Smith was a false prophet. He'd still remain a Mormon. So talk about closed-minded. That's about as bad as it gets. That Jehovah's Witness that they talked to once said he didn't want to read an article about the deity of Christ because, quote, it is disturbing my faith. Actually, it was interesting. I saw that in college. I was teaching a college class where students were allowed to pick a research topic, and somebody wanted to research a particular religion. I won't mention it. But I said, okay, make sure, because she was of that faith. And I said, okay, just be sure you're fair. And she said, oh, yeah. Well, her first two or three sources were all things that supported 
that religion and it was written by people in that religion, I said, you've got to have other sources that are from the outside. She said, well, I looked at some of them, but they made me cry. Wow. So uh, that didn't work out very well. Here's another sociological issue, susceptibility. A lot of the people, not always, but a lot of the people that join these cults are gullible, psychologically uh, vulnerable. Uh, they compartmentalize uh, conflicting facts. They ignore anything that contradicts their claims. Uh, isolationism is part of the sociological uh, makeup of some of these groups. I mean, think about Branch Davidian. They went off to Waco, Texas. Jim Jones down in South America. So they set up sometimes real physical barriers. I've got pictures of uh, some of these Scientology. Uh, there's a headquarter not too far from me up in uh, northern San Diego County, I think it is. Uh, it might be in Riverside County. But they have barbed wire around their, their uh, compound. And they say it's to keep people out. Uh, no, it's to keep people in. Uh, antagonism. They have a lot of fear and antagonism toward the outside world. They'll consider those of us who are not part of the, their group the enemy or the tools of Satan. And you end up sometimes with armed conflict. We saw that with Jonestown and in Waco. Okay, so we've talked about doctrinal issues and we've talked about sociological characteristics. Here's the third area, moral characteristics of a culture. They're big on legalism. Geister and Rhodes point that out. They have a rigid set of rules, and you better live according to these standards, which are not biblical. Mormons, for example, you can't use coffee, tea, or any drink with caffeine. Well, where is that in the Bible? It's not. How about the Watchtower Society? you got to go door to door. A lot of these groups are big on asceticism. Boy, you've you got to keep these rules. you got to uh, watch what you say and see and do and eat. That's supposed to gain favor with God, which isn't true, but that's what they say. Sometimes there's a moral characteristic, sexual perversion. Uh, Joseph Smith, for example, and other Mormon leaders had many wives. David Koresh claimed to own all the women in his group, even the young girls, and some of them as young as 10. Jeez. Physical abuse. And again, Scientology has physically abused a lot of people. And ex-cult members will often accuse their leaders of beating and sleep deprivation and food deprivation and be beating on kids. Awful. And a, th a third, uh, no, one, two, three, here's a fourth area of moral characteristic, intolerance toward others. Oh, yeah. Uh, talk about intolerance. Again, I think of Scientology. They lied. They broke into government offices to put pressure on people. Just incredible intolerance toward others. Uh, Mormonism had some violent intolerance in the past, the Branch Davidians. Uh, now they, they point out, uh, unfortunately, the Spanish Inquisition was actually a manifestation of Christian cultic zeal. Jeez. All right, um, let me do one more area here that they talk about. So those are the characteristics of a cult. What are some of their methods? How do they get more people involved? Well, moral deception. What does that mean? Lies. Duplicity. Mormon founder Joseph Smith engaged in fraudulent tactics, even landed him in court. Uh, he was once found guilty and fined. Transcendental meditation people have been deceptive. Here's the big deceptive area, and I want everybody to really think about this. They will often use Christian terms, but they have new meanings. Um, the Mormons do that. Uh, their term for salvation and resurrection, all sorts of things are different than we think of. New Age cults will sometimes use Christian, Christian terms like resurrection and ascension. 
But what do they mean? The rise of Christ's consciousness in the world, not the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Born again. Well, Christians use that to mean one thing. Well, New Agers will use that for reincarnation. Um, New Agers will also say the Christ to seek Christian approval. It just means kind of an occultic office held by a bunch of different gurus through history. So number one, often there's moral deception. Secondly, aggressive proselytizing. I mean, every group proselytizes. You you try to win uh, converts, of course. But cults carry it to an extreme. And basically, it's to gain God's approval. Remember, they're working for their salvation. They don't believe in grace. Um, They're working for grace rather than from grace, which the Bible teaches. If you look at 2 Corinthians 5.14, and uh, many times it involves impersonal evangelism or buttonholing people. Uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have a lot of door-to-door programs. Uh, They're probably a little less obnoxious than other people. Okay, um, let me do... Let me do one more area. Maybe. <laughs> I like this. So I, I like to continue in this. Why are the cults growing? Well, it says uh, many factors. Uh, one person said the unpaid bills of the church. The way they mean the church hasn't doctrinally trained its members. It hasn't really tried to make a huge moral difference in the lives of the members. It doesn't meet people's deepest needs sometimes. It doesn't make people feel like they belong there. It's really sad. The failure of the church is all over the place. So the cults have flourished. I heard that many of the Mormon converts are actually coming from a a Christian, a traditional Christian church, rather than just unbelievers. They've been burned somehow by the Christian church, and they're ready to join something else, like the Mormons. Um, Here's another area. Relativism. Yeah, Uh, There's no truth out there. You come up with your own truth. And then you've got doctrinal failure. Uh, The Christian church doesn't teach Bible doctrine really well. The relativism here, you know, that may be true for you, but not for me. Everything's relative. So it's all over the place. And then there's something called the turn east. Well, Americans have rejected pretty much their Judeo-Christian roots. And what they opt for? Secular humanism. You know, it's all about me. Well, how's that turned out? Not very well, and people are unhappy with that. And they realize, if it's all about me and my happiness, I'm not happy. And it's not you know, salving my soul. It's not helping me. So they've bounced off of that. And it says the only major force left is Eastern mysticism. Christian theism says God created all. Secular atheism says there's no God. Well, a lot of people don't like either um, so they've turned to cults that say God is all, and all is God. Sure, that's better. That really strokes your ego, doesn't it, if you're God? And they said also, because of this turn Easter, has been a turn inward. Because these mystical cults, what do they stress? Subjective experience, inner feelings. And that's grown rapidly. So we've turned as a culture, they say, from exploring the universe out there to explore the universe in here, inside of us. It's not outer space. Now it's inner space. Another reason they say cults are growing is the emphasis on self. Do your own thing. Um, Every man for himself, right? They said that's great fertilizer for the growth of new religions. It's how you feel and your felt needs rather than the real needs. Uh, Stress on feelings. That's subjectivism. If it feels good, do it. And so, yeah, you get a lot of subjective mystical experiences here. And then there's just moral rebellion. Human beings are in rebellion against God. 
And one dimension of this rebellion is certainly moral. People turn to a comfortable religion because they know their lifestyle isn't really what God wants. And then I think this is sad, but also part of the reason these cults are growing is social breakdown of families. Walter Martin once said this, We see a generation without a sense of history, cut off from the past, alienated from the present, and having a fragmented concept of the future. The now generation is in reality a lost generation. So families have broken down. People are on their own. They've got nobody. They've got nothing to back them up. And they're finding surrogate families. And these families uh, are not a good family at all, but that's where we are. Okay, I think I will end the chapter there. Uh, got a little bit longer than I usually do. But this is a wonderful intro, and the rest of the book is so good. Again, it's called When Cultists Ask, and the subtitle tells it all, a popular handbook on cultic misinterpretations. So most of this book goes through particular Bible passages. And again, I've uh, dealt with this with this man that I'm emailing back and forth, is he'll pull a verse out, and it's out of context. And so we go back and forth on things like that, a lot of misinterpretations. They'll do a lot of... Um, yanking a verse out of a chapter and or out of a whole book, and they focus on that rather than the context. I always think about Greg Kokel. He says, never read a Bible verse. Now, notice he doesn't say never read the Bible. Don't, don't just read one verse and pull it out of context. Well, thanks for uh, joining me this time, and we'll do another podcast soon. See you later.